Uh, my name is Josh. I serve as the college pastor here at Alliance, and I'm thrilled to bring the message this morning. The title of the sermon uh, is An Invitation to a Feast. I want to tell you about a feast uh, that we had this past summer. Um, we had kind of an unusual summer in a lot of regards. Typically, we have about 15 or 20 students that usually hang around for the summer, uh, and we have kind of a smaller group sort of than our typical semesters. But this past summer, we had like almost 50 students. It was like 40, 45 students, pretty regular. So it was, it was a pretty uh, unusual summer in a lot of ways. And there was this one night when the girls in College Connection, or as we say, CC, they planned this uh, evening together to go have kind of a girls' night. And so some of the guys came to me and they said, hey, look, our calendars are wide open all of a sudden, you know, uh, kidding. They said, can we, uh, can we have a guys' night? And, uh, and I was like, yeah, absolutely. They're like, we want to do a cookout over at your house. Like, apparently, they'd already planned this whole thing or something. I don't know. But see, what was really cool, what they didn't know was that about a week before that uh, was my birthday. And for my birthday, I had just gotten a brand new smoker. And so I was looking for any and every excuse under the sun uh, to fit anything into that smoker that I could and just see if I could cook it. And so um, well, I was like, yeah, we can absolutely have a cookout. And so all these guys came over. It was just a fantastic time. I think it was on a Tuesday. Can we pull that first picture up? And I talked to, I talked Michael and Pastor Scott into letting me do my work from home on a Tuesday, which is pretty unusual. But I said, I'm, I'm just, I'm sweating away for these boys in the name of Jesus. And so <laughs> I said something pretty close to that. And so here I am up here on the, under the tent there. And I just got the whole setup. I was working. I had all my books. I just didn't get that in the picture. Uh, and then on the right side there, you got that smoke ring and the barbecue. You got to have that. It's just Perfect. It was succulent. It was awesome. Second picture. There's the evidence. It was a great night. We had an amazing feast. I went back in there after I had filled my plate up and eaten, and, uh, and I went back in there to go get some more uh, of the, we had like honey sriracha pork tenderloin, like on top of the pulled pork, not on top, but with uh, and then I was like, you know what, uh, man, I, we need some burgers. And so I got some burgers and I did some burgers. Those disappeared. And then I was like, some of these boys don't have refined taste yet. So I'll get some hot dogs, you know. Uh, we got all beef. They're pretty good. We got all beef. I mean, we had like an awesome feast. It, all of us, my wife said I shouldn't say this, but I, I think I'm going to. We, <laughs> we got the meat sweats, man. It was just... <laughs> We ate so much red meat on that particular evening. Everybody's full at that point. We're all just lounging around. I thought we were going to play some games and things, but nobody moved. We were so full. We just <laughs> sat. Um, it was awesome. It was so good. <clears throat> now, what does that have to do with the sermon? Here's what it has to do. As good as that feast was, the Bible is replete with examples of feasts all over the place, glorious feasts that make our manly meat sweat menu look like a 99-cent frozen dinner on a clearance sale, just everywhere. And so in the name of a feast, turn your Bibles to Revelation 19 this morning as we talk about the marriage. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Pastor Scott's back there in the back. I was looking right at him. I'm just kidding. I want to keep my job here. You all will pick up in Revelation next week. But we are going to talk about a feast this morning. So turn in your Bibles to the Old Testament. So I steer clear of the end of the new and find Isaiah 55, 1 through 13. Isaiah 55, 1 through 13. We're going to read this scripture together in just a moment. 
And I want you to see as we read it, this text is like a, it's like a Bible in, in miniature. It's sort of a microcosm, like a little, a little snow globe. There's like this whole world of the scripture inside of there that tells the story of the gospel just in little ways that I hope we can piece together so you see the storyline of the scripture. And so let's read Isaiah 55, 1 through, we'll read the whole chapter, 1 through 13 together. I'm in the ESV, it reads like this. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. And delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear. That means lean in and listen. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know. And a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel. For he has glorified you. Verse six, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Verse 12. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Will you pray with me? Father, we just simply stop and bow before you. We ask you, that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your law, open our hearts, open our ears, that we may have ears to hear and receive what you have to say to us through your inspired and errant word. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. And so I told you Isaiah 55 as a chapter kind of is the Bible in miniature. What you have here is God's gracious invitation that he gives to his covenant people, Israel. In this case, he's speaking, I believe, to Judah. But then his promise is going to extend out, we'll see in this chapter, to the Gentiles. Now, that would have been unthinkable to a Jew in Isaiah's day. 
And so at the end of the chapter, when Jew and Gentile together are feasting on the riches of the Messiah, all creation is going to rejoice at the restoration that Christ brings to those who are near, speaking of the Jews, and those who are far, those who are outside of the Jewish people. Now, we've been in Revelation for a while. We're going to be there for, I expect, a little bit longer while. And so it's important to remember where Isaiah lands in the biblical timeline, because there's a lot of verses in this chapter right here that I've heard my whole life sort of ripped out of context like a coupon and sort of just spent any old way we want to. And we need to remember that everything here is falling into a particular scene and particular prophecy that God is giving to his people. And so I'm going to give you some rough numbers so you can remember some of these. Uh, These are approximate. But basically, Isaiah prophesied, he ministered about 700 years before Jesus. So the things he's going to say in chapter 53 about the suffering servant, those were said centuries before Jesus came on the scene. And Isaiah prophesied during a difficult time, during the time when the northern and southern kingdoms were facing this growing threat of the Assyrian Empire, which is where Nineveh was the capital city of that empire. Now, to put it in plain language, uh, the Assyrians were bad dudes. I mean, they were, you wouldn't want to run into them on a back alley. You wouldn't want to run into them anytime. In fact, when God said to Jonah, go preach to Nineveh, he went the other way because he knew about these guys, okay? Um, the, the Assyrians did things like they would take their enemies and pull their tongues out of their mouth and stake their tongue to the ground and leave them to die exposed in the elements. They were just mean. They would put people, impale them. That means run a a pole through their body. They would impale them on a pole alive out in the sun or the cold or whatever, and they would leave them there to die on that pole. They were wicked, mean people. They were the terrorists of their day. And so the Assyrian Empire is growing, and, and, and they're beginning to encroach upon God's people. About 100 years later, the Babylonian exile is gonna come, And we see some of that in the book of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. But if you skip way ahead to chapter 53, as I mentioned a minute ago, in the book of Isaiah, you have this well-known prophecy. You probably heard it quite often. Uh, In my day, third day, turned uh, the song into a, uh, turned the scripture into song. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our sins. The punishment that was upon us, uh, the punishment that was upon him brought brought us peace or something to that sort. And, and, and th- so what you see in 53 is this prophecy that, that this suffering servant is going to pay the price, that it's going to be the will of the Lord to crush that servant, okay? If you keep moving through the unfolding of Scripture and you read chapter 54, which comes right after chapter 53, you're going to see the effect of the work of this servant. It happens right after 53. Then when you get to 55, you have this invitation where Isaiah is calling the people to come back to the Lord to delight themselves in him and to find and receive his compassion and his abundant forgiveness. We could simply say it like this since we're talking about the metaphor of a feast. Chapter 55 is a buffet of God's goodness. If you are here this morning and doubting the heart of God for you today, you can see right here in chapter 55 who the Lord is and what he wants you to do to come and feast on him. You say, where do you see that? You're gonna see imperatives or commands all over Isaiah 55. It's littered all over the place where God says to people, come, buy, listen, eat, delight, seek, incline. 
God is calling people to action, to do something, to come to him because he wants them to understand something about his heart, that he is loving and gracious and compassionate and he longs to give that pardon to the repentant sinner. Simply put, God don't want you to miss out. God don't want you to miss out on what he's trying to offer to you in the scriptures through the Messiah. I love what Harry Ironside said about this. He said, if it weren't for the truth of chapter 53, the suffering servant, you would have no invitation in chapter 55. The invitation comes because of the work of the servant that's prophesied and you and I now on the other side of the New Testament, we have the advantage of looking back and seeing who that suffering servant was and seeing what he did and how by his stripes we are healed and now we are invited as we see in chapter 55. So let's walk through this chapter together to kind of keep it in the metaphor. You're, you're gonna hopefully pull this invitation out and you're gonna read it and if you're hungry and thirsty, the only question is, what will you do with the invitation? How will you RSVP? So let's look together. We'll spend the brunt of our time in verses one through five. What we see first is God calling the people to come to him and be satisfied. That word satisfy is important. It reminds me of what Jesus said in, um, in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be what? I heard it twice, two people. There's a room of you all. They will be satisfied. Four times the word come appears in verse one as an invitation to everyone. I don't know what your theological grid is that you read the scriptures through. I'm not gonna get into that, but I want you to look at the scripture. What does it say right here? And we're gonna talk about how that unfolds, but it says to everyone who thirsts. What's the qualification? If you're thirsty and you wanna be satisfied and you wanna drink from the living waters we'll talk about, come to Christ, he will satisfy you. I think about what Jesus said in the parables. We're studying the parables in our college group this semester. Jesus said in the parables, he who has ears to hear, that means to receive his teaching, let him hear it and let him receive it. In other words, if you're willing to listen and receive and respond, he will have you come to him. And so again, the important question to look at at the start is, who is God inviting? What does verse one say? Everyone. It plainly says everyone who thirsts. This is where Isaiah gets his name, the evangelical prophet. Why is he called that? Because he's constantly giving out invitations for people to come to God. But what is he simply doing? As the mouthpiece of God for his people at this time, he is merely saying what God has said. God has said, call them to come. What did Jesus say when he told the parable of the wedding feast? Go out and come into the highways and the hedges, I think the old King James says, and compel them to come in. That's what God is calling, to come in and to feast upon his promises and his presence. In, the, in, in, in John chapter four, what did Jesus say to the Samaritan woman? He said, if you knew who was talking to you, lady, you would ask for me to give you a drink. John chapter seven, anyone who thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. What's the promise? If you're thirsty, come to Christ and be satisfied. Long time ago, when I was a kid, there was this guy who was really, really good basketball player. You guys will probably remember him. Anybody remember that guy, by the way? Okay, a lot of people in the first service did. Grant Hill. Grant Hill, when I was, I wasn't even a Duke fan. 
all right? Uh, I try not to even say the word. It just pains me for it to come to my lips. But when I, was, when I was a kid, Grant Hill was a big deal. And so they had him doing commercials and they had this one Sprite commercial. I found out now that they have LeBron James doing one. I guess he's the new Grant Hill. I don't know about that. But at any rate, when I was a kid, Grant Hill was a real deal. And he, he had this Sprite and he would hold it out and he would say, obey your thirst, right? Obey your thirst. What is, he, what is he saying? If you're thirsty, this will quench your thirst. Well, we now know sugary soft drinks don't do that. They just make you thirsty for more. So I guess it works for an advertisement, okay? But it's not going to work for your soul. It might work for a soft drink, but it's not going to work for the thirsty soul who needs God to satisfy them deeply. That's what got Adam and Eve in trouble in the garden. If you think about what they did, God told them, leave the tree alone. Just don't eat from the fruit. They could go study the bark, I guess. They could admire the leaves. They could walk around it a bunch and whatever. Leave it alone. And what do they do? They had a thirst in them, even before the fall, for autonomy. And they shook their fist in God's face and they said, we're going to obey our thirst. And we're going to do what we want to do, not what you have told us to do. And when Adam and Eve plunged themselves into sin, they plunged every one of us and all of the human race into sin so that we are born in iniquity, the Bible tells us. You know what one of the effects of that is? We're thirsty. You're thirsty. You're looking for something. And depending on your age category, as Michael was talking about a little bit earlier, depending on your age category, you're probably looking for it in different places. You're trying to find something to fill you up. I talked to an officer two weeks ago, I think it was, on our first college connection. And you know, you know what he told me? He sadly said, man, he said, we haven't seen partying like this since 2009. He said, you wouldn't believe the calls we're responding to all over town, breaking up huge block party. You know, you know what's happening for you students in the room who are listening to me? You know what's happening? People are looking for a drink to fill them up. And they're looking for that effect that it gives them temporarily and it's not going to satisfy you and it's going to wreck your life and it's gonna take you further away from God. And Jesus is saying, come and be satisfied. You don't need that drink, I'll give you something eternal and lasting. And you won't be broke because you spend all your money on it. You will be rich. You'll be full. You'll be satisfied. See, we're thirsting for satisfaction. And like the great theologian Kenny Rogers said, we're prone to go looking for it in all the wrong places, aren't we? That's what Judah was doing in Isaiah's day. They were spending their energy, their time, their resources, everything in the wrong places. And God is inviting them, come if you're thirsty. Verse one and two, this one stumped me for a long time. He says, come all of you who have no money and buy my kids think that's a real thing. Like, you know, I'm like, kids, I don't got any money this week. And they're like, but dad, buy us. I'm like, it don't work like that. Like you're missing it. Well, why does it say come and buy if we don't got no money? Sorry. If we're broke, if you're spiritually broke, how can you come and buy what God is offering to you? I want to talk about that for a minute. He says come and buy wine, milk, and bread. What do those beverages represent? They're specific. They're on purpose. He could have said Sprite, I guess, because he knew Sprite would be a thing. But he says, come and buy these three things. Why? Because they symbolized something in Isaiah's day. They symbolized 
Life, nourishment, and joyful celebration. Life, nourishment, and joyful celebration. How do you come by that if you don't have anything to buy it with? Everything has its price, right? Even salvation. The word buy in this case means to wholeheartedly commit to God by faith. You fully buy in. That don't mean you put one foot in on Sunday and put another foot everywhere else Monday through Saturday. You live how you want to. It doesn't mean you read the Bible occasionally when you feel guilty. It means you come and you buy fully in and you feast at his table. The call is to satisfy your thirsty soul with life, nourishment, and joy that only the Lord can give you. If you're in this room this this morning or you're watching online and you're saying, I am thirsty, not for water. I'm thirsty for something to fill me up. Listen to me. Here's what I want to say to you. Thirst is not a problem if you go to the right place. Thirst is an opportunity. See, thirst reminds us that you can't find it in yourself. I don't care what Oprah and all of her new age gurus tell you to look within. People have been trying that for centuries, for millennia. It's not working. Because as soon as you look within and find something, guess what else? You discover how empty that is and it's not going to slake your thirst. You've got to go to the well that will never run dry, which is Jesus Christ, the blood that was shed and the body that was broken. That's the only thing that's going to satisfy you. Thirst is an opportunity. That's your time to come in and drink of the living water. But you know what else? The fact that you thirst for something outside of you, that's different from God. God doesn't, God doesn't thirst. God doesn't, does, God doesn't run low because you came to him this morning in prayer and you were broken and you were humble and you were needing his help and he goes, well, man, I'm a little bit low because yesterday everybody else was, was hitting me praying for App to beat Carolina. Just He doesn't have to go fill up to fill you up. He just gives you more of what you were made for. He gives you more of himself. And you're like, man, this is real good. I want some more of that. Not because it didn't satisfy, but because it was so good. You're like, I gotta have another sip. I gotta have another bite. Like that picture right there where it was empty and the boys went back in the house and they're like, I want some more of that. When, when you come to Christ and you feast on his word, you know what you find? You find that there is satisfaction in that relationship that you will not find anywhere else because that's what you were made for. Psalm 36, seven and eight. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. Does that resonate in your heart this morning? Like when you think about the gospel and you think about the Lord, and you think about his church, and you think about worship, and you hold a Bible in your hand that was copiously and carefully translated for you so that you can have the word of God in your language. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Look, look at the, the words in caps here. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. Your soul was made to sit down at the banquet table of God, period. You were not made to pull up a chair to the table of the world and fill up on junk food that will not satisfy you. There's sort of a legend going around that kind of keeps growing with time around our staff. <clears throat> I'm, I'm quite proud of it, to be honest with you. But um, 
There's a story about a staff lunch one time. Laura Micklin made this low country boil for us. And I'd only had a low country boil one time and it was, uh, it was nothing to write home about. I didn't get all that impressed. And so I showed up and my hopes were kind of low, but I walked into the room and there were tables that were lined up, stacked together with this butcher paper across them. And it, it looked like Forrest Gump's catch of shrimp had dumped on my table in front of me. And I sat down to this shrimp and sausage and the corn in the cob was just there for the color. I didn't care about that. But man, I sat down and they, they explained this to me because I just never had really seen. They said, they said, you just grab what's in front of you and, and you, you just eat all you want to. And I thought, you, you really mean it? So I ate everything in front of me and my neighbor didn't finish what was in front of them. I said, you're going to eat all that. And so I scooped over some more. And I looked over here and I sit beside another neighbor. Sometimes I put myself beside the right people at the staff lunch. <laughs> and I reached over and I grabbed some more off of that plate and I, I ate shrimp. I mean, there was a pile of, of, of the little shells or whatever in front of me. I ate sausage, man. I was about to pop. And Laura loved to cook for us, did she not? Loved to cook for us. And she would stand back and it just, it, I just could see it on her face. My, my, spiritual gift of eating gave her so much joy. <laughs> she would stand back and watch us. Am I telling the truth? She would stand back and watch us eat. And there was just so much glory in that moment that like she prepared this lavish feast and man, they're enjoying it. What kind of a fool would I have been if I knew that had been prepared for me? And I said, I'm gonna run down to the Circle K and get a bag of chips and a drink. Laura had joyfully prepared that meal just like the Lord has prepared a meal, a feast for your soul. God longs to see humanity flourish. And by our own devices, we are going away from him. Go see Romans chapter three. He longs to see us sit down at his table as king and host and banquet giver. That's the offer in this chapter. Now we have to stop for a second. I'm not gonna make it all the way through the chapter, obviously, but we have to stop for a second and we have to ask a fundamental critical question in the scripture. When God reveals himself to man, he first and foremost shows up and tells Isaiah and other people in the scriptures that he is a holy God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Throughout the book of Isaiah, it's called the Holy One of Israel. What does that mean? It means that this God, everything about him is holy. His love is holy. His justice is holy. Will not the judge of the earth do what is right, Genesis 18 says? His compassion, his forgiveness, everything about him is holy. There's no stain of sin in his actions, in his character, in his purposes, in his heart, nothing in his word, no stain of sin in this holy God. So we sang a part of Psalm 24 this morning. I didn't even know we were gonna sing that. But if we go to Psalm 24, it tells us that only one with clean hands and a pure heart can stand in his holy place. He's so holy, we can't be in there unless something happens. Well, we know the answer is in 53 with the suffering servant, but I wanna show you in this text where we also see the answer unfold in verses 3b through 5. It's remarkable. 
Look at verse four. Look at verse four. And don't get lost copying down notes. Track with me on this. this. Man, this just rocked my world this week. He says, I will make with you an everlasting covenant. Comma, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. Who is God speaking to directly in this text? He's not speaking immediately to me and you as he's giving this prophecy through Isaiah. He's talking to his covenant people at this moment. He's speaking to the people of Judah. And when you go to the new covenant, go read what it says. If you disagree about this, totally fine. I'm just telling you where I'm coming from. He says, I will make with you, with the house of Israel and Judah, a new covenant. He's speaking to the people of Judah right here. And he says, I'm gonna make an everlasting covenant, comma, that's important. Everlasting covenant generally refers to the new covenant. I'm gonna make a covenant that lasts forever. It hadn't even been mentioned yet. It's mentioned 100 or so years later in Jeremiah 31. Why do I keep saying comma, my steadfast, sure love for David? Because in verses three and four, there's a reference to another covenant, the Davidic covenant, which came before that. And so this everlasting covenant is building off of what came before it in the Davidic covenant. What did the Davidic covenant promise? A Messiah who was going to come from the line of David and establish an everlasting kingdom. What I think you have happening is the scripture is progressively unfolding and revealing God's plan to his people initially, but by extension for us. Now, hang on to all that for just a minute. I don't wanna go too fast. Look at verse five. He says, behold, that word in the scripture means pay attention. Look. You, I'm going to put some emphasis here, you shall call a nation that you do not know and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel for he has glorified you. Now that could mean that God is speaking to his, his people, the community of Israel, that in time they're going to call a nation that they don't know that's outside of their covenant, they're going to come to them that's possible. You can go to Acts chapter 10 and these Jewish Christians, Peter has the vision that where the sheet comes down and you can read about that. Eventually the gospel, I'm sorry, the spirit falls on the Gentiles and they discovered that, hey, we can't stop the gospel from going outside our covenant people. That's possible. But I discovered this week, if you look at verses two and three, the you is plural. You know how we say that in the South? Y'all, Right. Why do y'all spend your money on things that won't satisfy, Isaiah is saying. He's preaching to the community of Israelites, but in verse five, the pronoun suddenly switches from, from plural to singular. And there's one individual in view, I believe. Now, I could be wrong about this, but I think to me, it sounds like God is speaking to one individual who one day is gonna call a nation outside of the people of Israel and they're gonna come running to him. On this side of the New Testament, like all the pieces should be going together and you're going, oh my goodness. If that you in verse five is talking about the messianic servant from chapter 53 and go to all the other prophecies beforehand, then I take that to mean that the people of Israel, sorry, the people outside of Israel are gonna receive the invitation to come in faith to this messianic servant who was of the line of David, who established a new covenant in his blood. 
Verses three B through five, in, in, in my understanding, are showing this progressive building on these covenants that are working all the way to the point when Jesus shows up and he says, everything is gonna be fulfilled and I'm ratifying it in my blood. It's an invitation originally given to his people Israel, to them, but it's for you. It's for all of us. That's why it says everyone. That's why I made a big deal about that at the beginning because this Messiah is gonna do everything necessary to prepare the feast table for you to sit down. He's going to be the banquet. He's going to be the sacrifice. He's gonna be the host to offer us a lavish feast of joy, forgiveness, compassion, and satisfaction for the thirsty soul. The question comes again in verse two, if we go back and look at it. If this sort of eternally soul-satisfying feast has been provided for free, why in the world would we go look anywhere else? God says, listen to me. Can you hear a father pleading? Some of you fathers in this room have, you have pleaded with your children before. Some of you praying over your children at night are pleading over them while they're sleeping. Listen to the heart of the father. Listen to me. Eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Now, I'm, I'm out of time here, but I, I want you to see the rest of the flow of the chapter because it ties the whole thing up and you'll see the, the storyline of the Bible in miniature. If you look at verses six and seven, you can go study this later. Verses six and seven, the call goes out to every human being to forsake their sin. He says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Forsake your way and your unrighteous thoughts. In other words, not just what's in here, but what's out here. Forsake it all and turn away. Do a U-turn and come back to where you belong and seek the Lord. Verse eight and nine is one of those verses I told you that sometimes gets used out of context and we apply it in a lot of different ways, but we need to go back to the original context. When God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways are not your ways, they're higher than the heavens are above the earth. What's he saying? In the context of this prophecy to his people in the Old Testament, he's saying that the people outside of their people, their covenant people are gonna come to this Messiah. And that would have been unthinkable to a Jew in the Old Testament and it was unthinkable to the people in the New Testament until Jesus flipped everything upside down. They would have never dreamed God would call people outside of their nation. If you go to Ephesians 2, you know what it tells us in 11 through 13? Those of you who were called the uncircumcision by the circumcision, that means you were called common and unclean by people who were inside the covenant, that's no longer the case. He said, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. So how many peoples of God are there? One people of God. How many ways of salvation are there? One way of salvation. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Verses 10 and 11. God's word will deliver the invitation and just like the water cycle effectively always accomplishes its intended outcome, God's word will refresh creation. Verses 12 and 13, I love this. It ends with a vision of God's triumph in the future. 
when the curse of sin is removed. What happened to Adam when they sinned? He, God said, you're gonna work the ground by the sweat of your brow and you're gonna have br- uh, thistles and briars that grow up and thorns instead of the produce that you want to see happen. What does this text say right here? At the end of everything, when God has restored it and redeemed humanity comes in, creation is going to rejoice. No more briars and thorns. Cypresses and myrtles are gonna grow up in their place because God has restored everything that was broken because of sin. So the suffering servant has shed his own blood. He has sacrificed his life. He has sent out the invitation. You have it, it's open. The only question facing every living person in all of history is how will you RSVP? How will you respond? I'm gonna close with a couple of quick statements to help us think through maybe some application here. If you're hungry and thirsty, it's plain and simple. The Bible says, come. Come to Jesus. Come to the messianic suffering servant. If you're gorging yourself on the junk food of this world, go to verses six and seven and read what God would say to you there. Turn from your sin and come back to the feast. If you're like, I mean, I've got plenty of time, man. I, I, he, he's not coming for a while. I, I'm gonna do my thing and then one day when I've had my fill, I'm, don't presume upon the mercies of God. We don't know when we're gonna be called to stand in front of him. We don't know when we're gonna leave this life. So it says, call on him while he's near. And if you're wrestling with doubt and discouragement this morning because you don't see God at work in your life like you would like to, you're praying for a lost family member, a lost friend, a coworker, a neighbor, and you're discouraged because you're like, I'm sharing, I'm talking to him about Jesus, but nothing's happening. Go look at the last few verses, 10 through 13. The power is not in your presentation. The power of God unto salvation is the gospel first to the Jew, then to the Gentile, for everyone. The power's in the word. Why did Jesus tell the parable of the sower? You just scatter it, let it land where it will, and he's going to effectually call, draw, and save all those whom he has chosen before the foundation of the world. It's not riding on you. If you're discouraged in your evangelism today, I wanna encourage you, the power's in the gospel. Just share it, just spread it. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this word this week that has just so encouraged and excited me. It's amazing invitation that is sent out 700 years or so before any of this ever happens. Thank you for the work of Jesus, the messianic suffering servant who was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our sin so that the punishment that brought us peace was on his shoulders. Lord, I pray this morning over all the different groups of people that this text would speak to. Lord, I pray for the the unbelieving person that you are working on them right now and your spirit is calling and drawing them. I pray that today would be the day of salvation, that they would respond today and say, yes, Jesus, I wanna sit down at what you have provided and feast on you. Lord, call and draw them and save them. I wanna pray for the person, Lord, who's in this place and 
who's had a, a week of just filling up on worldly trash, junk, things that are leaving them empty. Give them the courage, Father, to see the delights that you have provided and to turn from those things of the world and to, to turn their eyes upon Jesus, look full in your wonderful face. God, I pray that over them. Or I pray for the person who is saying, I, I've got time. I've got time, I'm gonna do my thing. Lord, I pray that they would stop and they would come back and they would repent. Find your pardon. Lord, I pray for the folks in this place who are wrestling with doubt, wrestling with discouragement, trying to share, trying to be a witness and I feel like I'm messing it up. God, remind them where the power is. Remind them of the invitation. Help them remember they're just the mailman. They just deliver. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for how you deal with our hearts. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.